The point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle, set up by the Lord, not by man. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already men who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They, say, they serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But the ministry, of Je the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one and it is founded on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or one, his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he's made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. So as I've emphasized in previous weeks, there's good reason to believe that the book of Hebrews is written to churches in Jerusalem, churches who sense the ground shifting beneath their feet. Tensions between Israel and Rome are rising. They fear the wrath of the empire barreling down on their city and their people like a wrecking ball. For these churches, participation in uh, temple life is still integral to their faith practice. They still bring their regular offerings. They still celebrate the festivities. They, and they rely on the priests to mediate their relationship to God. And so they're anxious. What if that is all taken away? What if all that is reduced to rubble? Now, we skipped over part of the answer the author of uh, Hebrews gives to that, those issues. I skipped it because it's obvious. I mean, one reason not to despair over the fate of the temple is the fact that Jesus is a high priest like, you know, Melchizedek. We all know Melchizedek. Yeah, he, he's that guy that lived to be 900, right? Oh, no, no, that's Methuselah. Uh, one of the, the guys thrown in the fiery furnace, Shadrach, 
No, Meshach and Abednego. No, so that's, that's not, that, not either. Uh, Melchizedek. Oh, right, the longtime host of Jeopardy. Oh, no, no. It's Electrabek, not Melchizedek. You know, you can be forgiven if you have a hard time placing Melchizedek. He appears in the book of Genesis. Now, one of the things about the book of Genesis, it starts off with God acting quite globally for creation, you know, things like the flood, uh, the Tower of Babel. Uh, but then in chapter 12, sort of the camera sort of zooms in on Abram. And God makes these promises to Abram and Abram's descendants. I will be their God. They will be my people. So before this, we get these stories of global impact, but now we're getting focused in on this childless couple and their descendants. And so that's chapter 12. Chapter 14, what happens is uh, Abram is on his way to the land promised to him. And there is this war between uh, various tribes and Abram uh, allies with these other tribes against sort of this common enemy. There's a battle. They win. And after the victory, the leader of one of those allies holds sort of a victory celebration, a victory ceremony. And that leader is Melchizedek. He's referred to as the king of Salem and surprisingly, a priest of the Most High God. A priest of the Most High God. That's, that's assigned to the Levites. The tribe of Levi takes over that role. And they don't even exist yet, right? Abram has yet to father the man who fathers the man that fathers the tribe that will become the Levites and serve as priests of the Most High God. Who is this guy? Well, we don't get to learn much more because after that he sort of vanishes from the story. His appearance is later reflected on by the psalmist in Psalm 110, which the preacher of Hebrews quotes. The psalmist assumes that the difference between your standard priests and this mysterious Melchizedek is that there's something eternal about his line. So that a psalm celebrating God's promise to establish and preserve the line of David's rule declares that this Messiah will be a king and priest like that king and priest. Psalmist says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now the preacher of Hebrews sees this psalm finding its fulfillment in the life and work of Jesus. He is that king. He is that priest. He wasn't a Levite conducting priestly duties in the temple. He's like Melchizedek, a priest who brings eternity to bear. And that is evident in the sacrifice that he brings. His own life and eternal life overcomes death. Now, I don't know what you were told about 
um, why the Bible is divided into two testaments and what the difference between them uh, is, but there are misconceptions abound. I mean, growing up, in, in my Reformed tradition, we used phrases like covenant of works versus covenant of grace. In other words, in the Old Testament, people are saved by their works, their behavior, their ability to uphold the law. In the New Testament, people are saved by God's grace. And to be fair, there are passages you can draw on to defend that understanding. But it's really too simplistic an understanding of how the scriptures, the story that unfolds as a whole. Salvation has always required divine grace. I mean, think about Israel's slavery in Egypt. Did Moses come in, deliver the Ten Commandments, and say, look, folks, you obey these, and God will save you. No. God delivers them from slavery, and then Moses delivers the law. The law is not how you obtain freedom. The law is how you live in response to the freedom you've obtained. The preacher of Hebrews finds in this obscure character, Melchizedek, evidence of that divine grace operating right here in the beginning. It's evidence of a divine intervention right at the beginning of the story. Yes, the story of Abraham is the origin story of God's chosen people, uh, people with a particular and unique calling, but they will always be fallible, mortal, vulnerable, right? There is a need for divine intervention. This cannot be escaped even when those, that, that people demonstrate their devotion to God in creating one of the great architectural wonders of the ancient world, this temple. There's still fallibility, mortality, and vulnerability. It's baked right into the cake. That's why, says Hebrews, that's why they have to perform those rituals year after year after year. It's not that their efforts are misguided or wrong-headed. It's just that they, they're not enough. They can't be. I suppose a question, natural question to ask at that point is, well, enough to do what? Uh, what couldn't they accomplish that the priestly sacrifice offered by Jesus, high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, what, what that sacrifice could? Well, it's this question that brings us to what composes the bulk of what we just read, our reading this morning. And the bulk of our chapter isn't the preacher. It's, it's the preacher quoting the prophet Jeremiah. Now, we have this, sometimes the prophets are presented as people who predict the future. It's really, again, it's, not, it's kind of a misconception. It's the role of prophets simply to speak on behalf of God, to bring a word from the realm of eternity into a world bound by the limits of our fallibility, mortality, and vulnerability. Sometimes that's a word to a people in despair over that fallibility, mortality, and vulnerability. 
Other times it's a word of judgment to a people in denial of those things, such as when the rich and powerful assume that their wealth and power is evidence of divine blessing and the poverty and weakness of others is evidence of divine judgment. No, then a word from the Lord is a word of judgment. It is difficult to live aware that we are fallible, mortal, and vulnerable. And so you can see why we would need both types of prophetic word. We swing back and forth between despair and denial. And you often find that the denial is masking a deep despair. I've mentioned it multiple times as this podcast series called the rise and fall of Mars Hill. Mars Hill is a church in um, Seattle. And, and the pastor, Mark Driscoll, he built this church of thousands, in part because of his aggressive message to young men, telling them to man up, to find other men who will hold them accountable. However, when the church's elders approached him about the things that he needed to confront in his own life, and they were going to support him through it, he resigned. He fled to another state. And a church that at its peak was home to 35,000 people closed its doors within days, and it closed them permanently. But that story is far from unique. It's a common story in a world bound by the limits of our fallibility, mortality, and vulnerability. Just that common story played out on a, on a big stage. But it's one of denial and despair. The scriptures tell that story over and over. You see it over and over in the scriptures. Denial and despair. But in the midst of that, those, that story being told over and over again, there are these, these interruptions, these intrusions of grace. God intrudes and brings something of the eternal into the story. And these, these interruptions, these intrusions, aren't just exceptions to this, that story of our, of our fallibility, mortality, and vulnerability. They are ways in which God is pointing us to the ultimate resolution to the story. And that's what Jeremiah is doing here. He's, he's telling us about that ultimate story. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds, write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. No longer will they teach their neighbor to say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. The, the eternal won't be an intrusion that shakes us from our denial or our despair. It'll just be a given. It'll be basic operating procedure. To try to teach it would be like instructing your neighbor against breathing through your ear holes. You know, stick with the face holes. They do a better job. No, you won't need to do that because it just, it's just obvious. 
That level of obviousness is where this story is heading. Everything God does is to point us in the direction of that ultimate objective. Hearts so informed by the reality of God's presence. There's no need to be taught the law, to learn the rules. Good faith, uh, faithful action will just come instinctively. Now, what the, what the scriptures mean by the law can mean various things. But let's, let's think about it in a second in just in terms of the Ten Commandments. Actually, let's think about it specifically in terms of the Tenth Commandment. The business about not envying your neighbor. Uh, Thomas Aquinas argued that if you could keep that one, you can keep the rest. Which makes some sense, right? Because if you are fallible, mortal, and vulnerable, it's easy to feel shortchanged, to feel like you don't have enough, especially when others seem to have more or have what you don't. And it's that feeling, that feeling, the feeling that we're being left vulnerable and mortal and, uh, and, and fallible that m causes us to act out and break the other commandments like stealing, murdering, committing adultery, working without Sabbath rest, all the rest. So what does it take? What does it take to enable us to get rid of that feeling? To get rid, to stop operating out of our sense of fallibility, mortality, and vulnerability. To instead be content with what we have and feel no lack. Well, one could argue, ah, well, to do that, for, in order for God to pull this off, God must make us into something completely different than what we are. Infallible, immortal, invulnerable. And that may be part of what God will do. But that's not the heart of it. That's not the heart of it. At least not as Jeremiah presents it here. I mean, how does Jeremiah say God is going to pull this off? Well, we're told in the final verse. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. When we know, when we know that the God of infinite power looks in, on us in our fallibility, mortality, and vulnerability and bestows on us infinite love, we're transformed. Our fallibility, mortality, and vulnerability remain, but they are overwhelmed by gratitude. We have all we need. And we do, we have that forgiveness, that infinite love. Our great high priest has secured it. You know, we are about to enter into that time of year. I mean, we've already entered into that time of year when our culture makes a full frontal assault on our fallibility, mortality, and vulnerability. I mean, every ad, every promotion is designed specifically to make you wonder, do I have enough? To present us with people whose lives we're supposed to envy because they have what we don't. 
combating that assault, it takes an intentional commitment. In fact, you might want to take a day this week to remind yourself of what you do have. Thursday, Thursday work for you? Let's go with Thursday. Let's do it Thursday. Thursday is the day that you, you, you can spend recalling what you do have and start here. You have a great high priest, one who has secured your place in that eternal story. The story in which the reality of God and God's love is like the reality of air. Start by remembering that's your future. That's been settled. Because when you start there, all the other things that you, you know, speak gratitude about, they're not just nice benefit, you know, little benefits. They are the way in which that eternal grace is intruding on your lives. It's a sign of where things are headed. They glow with the light of eternity. So give thanks. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen.